most people think the best part about being an agriculture producer is the freedom to be your own boss, to innovate, and to try new things. But trying new things in agriculture isn't always easy. When you try new things, you can't help but wonder what your neighbors, family, and bank account are going to say about it. Nobody really wants to be the person whose unconventional management decisions are the talk of the town. Some people don't mind. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we'll hear from two producers from up in peace country who had the courage to try new things, and by my estimation, they're doing pretty darn well because of it. Their names, Kurt Hale and Ash Armstrong. This episode could quite possibly be one of the best ones we've ever produced. And honestly, we had very little to do with the production of this episode. Let me explain. A few months back, when COVID-19 really started to impact the day-to-day lives of people in Alberta and in other parts of the world, I was in a meeting with other agriculture extension groups and we're talking about, well, how do we do our jobs if we can't do workshops, farm field days, any in-person events for the rest of the year? In that meeting, I mentioned Rural Roots could really use some content for our podcast. For subscribers to our podcast, you probably noticed that we're not super consistent at producing podcast episodes. It's not like I've lost interest in the podcast. The podcast is still my favorite part of my job. But because of the activities of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions expanding, I've just had less time for the podcast recently. Anyway, when I made that request for podcast content, one of the first people to raise their hand and say they'd help out was Johanna Murray of the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association. Johanna is the extension coordinator for Peace Country Beef and Forage. I first met Johanna at the Young Agrarian's Winter Mixer in the Peace earlier this year. When I first met Johanna, I think when anybody first meets her, you really pick up right away that she's an extremely friendly person. She's got this really big smile on her face. What I didn't know about Johanna at the time is she's pretty damn good at conducting interviews. The episode you're about to listen to is all Johanna's doing. Aside from a 30-minute phone call me and her had before she went into recording, I really didn't do much to help with this one, which is really impressive, by the way. What I mean is, as far as I know, Johanna's never done anything like this before. So Johanna, if you're listening right now, if this really was your first attempt at storytelling, conducting an interview, doing a podcast episode... Congratulations, because you did a great job. To make a podcast episode, it takes both an interviewer and an interviewee to tell the story. And Johanna selected two great producers from Peace Country to tell this particular story. So you got Kurt Hale of Maverick Livestock in Hines Creek and Ash Armstrong of Armstrong Acres in Hythe. I actually think I met Ash at the Winter Mixer in Peace Country as well. They're both really well-spoken, and I'm not too sure if either one of them is aware of that. Uh, I, I really like this part of the interview with Ash. You're welcome. Feel free to edit out whatever you want. <laughs> I am a rambler. I apologize. I should have warned you. Uh, that's Sorry. all good. <laughs> Sometimes people ramble and they say really good stuff, though. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> they don't. <laughs> so you think you're I'll let you decide. You don't have to tell me. I'll let you decide. Ash, welcome to the world of podcasting. It's all about rambling on. I'm probably 10 minutes into an introduction and listeners are probably wondering when I'm going to shut up and let the interview play. Uh, soon, actually. Both Kurt and Ash run cattle. Kurt also does annual crop production, and Ash also raises pastured poultry and pork. I like how Johanna paired these two up for this episode because it gives you two different egg perspectives. You've got Kurt, who grew up on a farm and is slowly watching the next generation of his family take on more and more responsibility for that farm. And then you have Ash, who's a new farmer. She got into farming as an adult. Despite having two different pathways into agriculture, they do have one thing in common, 
they've both been through a transition. Ash transitioned from being a non-producer to a producer. And Kurt, a few years back, transitioned from high chemical input agriculture to one that's a bit more regenerative. And just a heads up, the recording was done with Zoom as well as a handheld recorder. So the audio might not sound as crisp as the audio you're listening to right now. Doesn't make the stories any less inspiring, though. I'm not sure what to think as I log into Zoom one Friday morning in May of 2020. I'm going to be talking to Kurt Hale of Maverick Livestock, a mixed operation near Fairview, Alberta. Restrictions on social gatherings mean that I can't go out to the farm for a face-to-face interview. As Kurt logs on, I'm grateful once again for the wonders of technology to get us through this. But I wonder about the implications for the future. My name is Johanna Murray. I'm the Extension Coordinator at Peace Country Beef and Forage Association. I plan events, mostly webinars these days, and help out at the research farm in Fairview and on some of the on-farm projects we're working on across the Peace Region. I love agriculture. Both the new and the old ways we grow food are some of my favorite topics. I also love talking to farmers and ranchers about their practices and what they've learned. So when Derek said he was looking for some podcast content for Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, I jumped at the opportunity to try out the new medium for extension. The Hales were an obvious choice for an interview. They've been involved with PCBFA for several years. Both Kurt and his son Robbie have served as board members and they're innovators, willing to experiment and not afraid to change their practices. If they think something else will work better than what they're doing, they'll try it. So on this Friday in May, Kurt and I sit down over Zoom for a chat about Maverick livestock, cover crops, and the challenges of regenerative agriculture. So to start off with, um, would you mind to tell me a bit about your operation? I know uh, you run, you work with uh, Maverick Livestock. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, we started off uh, well in 19, as far as Maverick Livestock, uh, we've been Maverick Livestock since about 2012, I believe. Uh, before that, uh, we were an elk operation, uh, same people involved. Uh, of course, when that all went south, we had a plan B and we went back to what we were more used to and uh, got involved in what we're doing today and never looked back from there, basically running a cow calf operation and and doing some cash cropping, uh, rotating a bit. But yeah, that's what we're doing. Uh, I have two sons involved with me. And of course, I've got daughter-in-laws and uh, son-in-law working with me, so I couldn't have it any better, really. Awesome. So, how long have have you been farming? What got you into agriculture in the first place? Well, of course, I grew up uh, on a farm. Uh, we, uh, if you want to go way back, uh, I grew up till I was nine years old, uh, a little place north of Dallas, Texas. A little place called Van Alstein, Texas. Uh, and then my dad decided to move to Canada. All of our other family were already here. We were the last to come. I guess we were hardest to convince. <laughs> but uh, it's the best move my dad ever made when he got us out of Texas. I still like Texas, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for Canada in, in any way. Uh, way too many people there now. But uh, we come here in 1969, just a quick history. And then uh, of course, I grew up here farming with my dad, and uh, you know it was like anything. There was good times and hard times, but through it all, uh, you gain a lot of experience. Not even realizing it as a young person, maybe, but uh, then as you get older and get into it, you realize uh, what a benefit it was to grow up doing it. And I, I just grew and grew to love it more and more. And it just, to me, it was kind of like it was my calling, so I stuck with it and. Uh, did a few other things, made a bit of a circle, but landed back in agriculture, and that's where I intend to stay. So, so you mentioned elk, and I know now you're cow calf, and uh, you've done a ton of work with cocktails. Um, but what's your favorite thing, or the thing you're most proud of doing on your operation? I guess uh, one thing uh, on our operation, you know, we went through some phases. And uh, we tried different things. And I guess our goal was to try and match 
the land base that we have on our farm, which is a bit of a variation, uh, to the best potential production, whether it be on the cattle side and grazing, uh, cereal crops, whatever it may be. Uh, so it took us time to do that. You know, some of the property that we purchased is in a different area than where I live. And so one thing I've learned, you can watch the people that have been there for a while and observe what they're doing. And you can leap yourself forward a little quicker that way. In most cases, if you go into the area, um, uh, you know, and you're not experienced in that area, what happens is, uh, am I really that much better of a farmer or cow producer than they are that I can come and show everybody how it's done? Absolutely not. So you kind of got to work within the parameters of what your capabilities are, what your interests are, and what the land can produce, uh, you know, potential-wise uh, the best. And so I guess when I say proud of, uh, I guess just the idea that we've been able to, through experimentation, trial and error, school of hard knocks, we've come to the place where we feel we have, you know, a business or an idea at least of what our land is best suited for. And it's not one of them, you know, I'm going to go into an area and I'm driving a Chevy and I'm going to drive a Chevy no matter what. It's whatever works best, you know. Right. And but we did and it's worked well for us. So we, we like the combined operation and we realize there's, I would say, more work involved in a mixed operation. But we believe that always gives you the greatest potential, because if you grow something and you can't utilize it as a cash crop necessarily, you can always feed it and get your money out of it. And our goal, I guess our biggest goal was is to keep as much of the revenue produced uh, in our pockets rather than passing it on down the line to, you know, the retailers or whoever's, you know, the end user, keep as much of it in between there as we can. And that's, you know, somewhat limited, but we've done a few different things in the marketing side, made some people happy, made some people very upset. And, uh, I hate to say it, but in a way, uh, we've said some of the guys that buy our product, when they're upset, we're happiest. That may yeah. seem back, but in a sense, it's not that they don't like our product. They love our product. But, of course, their goal is to get it for as cheap as possible and make more money off of it. So we're trying to retain that down the chain further. You've been doing a lot of work with regenerative agriculture, it sounds like. Um, when, when did you get started with that what got you what got you interested in the regenerative side of things uh that's pretty easy for me to uh actually reply to we had been pretty much um what would i say on the cereal side or on the cash crop side uh over time we realized there was two things that really got us thinking a different direction one of them was our risk management side of things uh, a guy told me one time, if you do not manage your risks, you will not have to worry about managing your money. So we started thinking about that a lot. So that was part of it. That was a huge part of it. Uh, were we making some money? Yes, we were. But we had tremendous risk involved. And we realized that you're kind of playing with dynamite. Someday it's going to explode on you. And we wanted to get away from that as much as possible, and we were able to do that. Uh, we haven't used fertilizer in, well, since 14, uh, and I would say that with a word of caution. I, I will back up. We used a little bit of fertilizer two years ago on some grass for seed production. So other than that, no. And uh, when I say caution, I'm not saying that it's – not something you should do. I'm just saying for us, that was our goal. We've achieved that part of it quite well. So the risk side was one thing. The other thing was the sustainability, of course, which everybody talks about. We do want to stay here for the next generation, and we want it to be better for my kids and my grandkids, and we're headed in that direction, I think, and uh, that's a big goal of ours. But in saying all that, you still have to be um, 
you know, productive in the sense that you're making money, nothing sustainable unless it's producing cash for you to keep going. Yeah. And, and the lifestyle. The second part of it, I would say, is are we raising healthy food or are we going to find out down the road through the use of all our chemicals and sprays and whatever else it might be? That's always open for debate. But we said we have to answer for ourselves and not for everyone else. Right. So the interesting thing was um, I started getting concerned about the use of certain chemicals uh, that we may seem safe today, of course, from the people selling them. They're always going to tell you that. But in the reality of things, down the road 20 years, if it comes out that this chemical was very detrimental to people, I asked my boys, who's responsible, the ones selling it or us using it? And the resolve was that both. Uh, but we could we could cut out cut our part out of that system and say, listen, we want to raise healthy food. We want to keep our soil healthy, and that's how we got into regenerative farming. When we were actually, uh, this was a weird thing. Uh, one day, me and my youngest boy were headed up to my oldest son's place, and I said, you know, uh, I've been watching something on YouTube through the winter. I do research quite a bit in the wintertime when I have more time. And I kept seeing these cover crop things come up in the U.S. predominantly. Right. And I'm telling Robbie, you know, I, I think we should look at this, but I think we need to find someone that's doing it and actually physically go there and try to learn some things. And we were heading up to my son's place and my phone rang and a girl from the Forge Association in Fairview here called me. Uh, it was like I couldn't believe it. And and I had been a member before, but I hadn't been involved in it a lot, uh, you know, in that at that time frame. And hadn't even paid my membership because uh, we'd been going to seminars and different things that they were putting on at that time. And a lot of it was repeat and didn't interest us that much. They were doing good work. It just wasn't something that we were really focused on but the girl called and said that they were having a seminar and wondered if we were interested and I said I, I was thinking probably not to be honest and uh, anyway I said but what's it about and she said well there's a guy coming to Rycroft and he's going to be talking about cover crops and I nearly dropped my phone and, um, and I said absolutely and I said by the way we'll pay up our, our members <laughs> she said oh don't worry about that anyway so as it worked out uh, I couldn't go I had to pick up my parents from the airport they had been in Dallas so anyway I told the boys whatever you do get things arranged I want you to be there if you can and they said absolutely so they went and uh, when it was over of course we talked and I said how did it go and they said dad that was the best thing we went to in years we're in. So from there, we started looking at getting to some of the big seminars that they were putting on in the U.S., and we ended up going to Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, they had a big one there. We flew down, and when we left there, we had a whole new mindset. We knew what already what our goal was as far as the changes we wanted to make. And I'll never forget Gabe Brown saying, I've used this many times. Uh, it wasn't his quote, but it was from someone he knew, and it came from someone in Canada. I don't know who. But a guy told him that, Gabe, if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. And that was a real revolution for us because, you know, to change your mindset when you've done something a certain way and done it like everybody else, we're like a bunch of sheep sometimes, you know, yeah. and I'm one of them, uh, to change the mindset and see things differently was a big, big change and a big challenge in, in ways and areas. In other ways, it was easy, but it was a huge adjustment. And we're so, you know, we're very thankful that we have people like that that have kind of frontiered this whole thing and carried on. And from there, it's just exploded. And 
we just love what we do. And that's a big part of it. If you don't like what you're doing, it's a sad life. And we love what we do. So. I think you've uh, kind of answered one of my other questions, which was what, what's the most challenging thing about the transition to regenerative practices? So Yeah, it would be the mindset, right? Yeah. What other sort of big changes have you seen in the industry while you've been farming? What? Well, of course, like a lot of us, uh, we've seen technology become a bigger uh, tool in everything we do. And some of it, I think, has been very beneficial. Um, one of the other changes I've seen, uh, and, and you can take it negative or positive, depending on what you're doing today on your operation. But I'll, I'll tell you, as we got in more on the cash crop side of things, and we would go to seminars and go to all kind of things, the thing that bothered me a lot was you would have so-called experts, and some of them were. Some of them were very good in their field, but mostly they were doing the job they were paid to do. And you had to decide, you know, if it was something that was for real on your operation or not. The thing that bothered me was they kept leading everyone to believe they would have a big seminar on how to be more productive by using their product or all these other products, whatever it may be. And, and the whole thrust or, or the theme of it was that you're going to feed the world. You know, it's going to be up to you farmers to feed the world. You can be proud of yourself and then they would pat you on the back, you know, and all this stuff. But over time I realized that I had to some degree disagree. Uh, because if you want to feed the world, from our viewpoint, you teach people how to grow their food. You know, uh, right. not sell them your food. And I mean, I love to sell my product, don't get me wrong. But my whole goal shouldn't be, in, in our view, on this operation, to, uh, you know, sell the world our product when there's a lot of people starving, if you really, in other words, the human element, if you really want to help the human element in these countries where people are starving, they can't afford my food anyway. And if you really are concerned about humankind, you need to teach them how to grow their food in a sustainable way. And so we kind of backed away from a lot of those kind of seminars because in the end, a lot of it was about sales. So you have to program the farmer to accept what you're trying to sell. And so I I guess one of the things I've discussed with my sons more than anything is to be able to withstand the marketers. The marketing world is a huge world, and it's a very, it's a very powerful world. If you cannot resist to some degree at least, and I would say to a larger degree, the marketing world you will be pretty much caught up in their web and it's pretty hard to get untangled in it when you get caught up in it real heavy and uh, that was another one of our struggles but we've been able to do that when we get reps calling us they'll say what are you seeding this year how much fertilizer and i said i'll tell you right up front i'll just be honest with you i'm probably going to be your poorest customer and i usually don't hear from them again okay but yeah, so in all that, when I say changes, it's always changing. And I'll say this, one of our biggest challenges that I should have mentioned is staying up with change. Right. Because it's, we're in a fast changing world today. And so you need to have some stability within that change. And uh, like I say, you have to really have the mindset of focusing on your goals and sticking with them as much as you can, but always be open to new ideas, but be very careful as to what you get caught up in when it comes to those things. I hope that wasn't too long of an answer, but anyway. <laughs> no, I think that's good. Um, I was actually, I wanted to ask, um, I know you kind of, you mentioned briefly that you kind of experimented with some of your, some of the changes before you com fully committed to them. Like how, how did you go through that process? How did you uh, kind of test the waters before you fully committed? Well, any particular changes are, are you thinking of? Um, we could go with the example of cover crops, I guess. But. Okay. 
Um, how did we deal with it? Well, what we did when we came home from that seminar, you know, one of the things I'll be, I'll, I'll tell you, when we were there, they treated us so well. Uh, Ray Archuleta found out we were from Canada, and he gave us some one-on-one -on -one time, him and Gabe, while we were there and let us ask anything that we wanted to. And that was very valuable for us. And one of the things he told us, he said, when you go home and you begin to try this, one of the things you need to accept is for the first while at least, people are gonna be watching and asking questions, and, but more than anything, watching you and be prepared to be the village idiot for a couple of years. Okay, and no one likes that, but you know what? Just the way it is. Everything's, uh, you know, not going to work until it works. And then people say, "Well, just a minute, I'll reconsider." And that's just the way it is. It's human nature. Yep. So we dealt with that, but we came home and we went to work seeding covers. The first year, I don't know if I guess we we felt it was not a good year to start. In one sense, it was a terribly dry summer. And we said, uh-oh, this was a bad year for this. But in reality, it was not. It was a bit of a blessing because we seen what a really, really dry year could potentially do. But any areas that were lower where we had moisture, it was tremendous. And we said, okay, if we can move this up onto the dry land more with some rain, we've got something. The year after we did that, we had huge production, and it has gotten better and better. It literally has. We can show you where we started on property and where we, you know, transitioned in with other property, and we just see it improve more and more, and that is just a real assurance that we're on the right track, and we will continue. And so some of those things, yeah, those are big changes for us. Um, but along with that, as far as one of the challenges of it all, is if I were to lean more towards the cash crop side or, you know, production side that way, mm -hmm. the bigger challenge for us is on the cash crop side if we're going to rotate in covers because we've gotten in such, in a lot of cases, a fin financial position as farmers to where every acre has to produce every year, year after year. And that's, you know, that's running it to the max. And we all know, uh, you know, you keep running high speeds, you're gonna blow a tire. Somewhere you have to, to be able to click along at a steady pace, I would say, uh, something that's less risky, and uh, keep mm -hmm. moving from there. For us to get into that phase was a bit of a challenge. We think we're very close now to that. There's always challenges, but to the point where we don't concern ourselves as much about too much rain, not enough rain, all of those kind of things, sure they affect us, but on the average, we're uh, quite comfortable being able to produce both cash crop side and livestock side but we try to work the two together rather than separately to have a you know a more sustainable operation. We find this working for us. That's a, a goal we talk about a lot in a lot of different uh, business classes and stuff for agriculture is to get to that point where you you're maintaining. That's right. Yeah, if you're not, you're usually going backwards. You're either moving ahead or you're slipping and uh, I think you just got to look at your own operation I couldn't walk onto your farm and tell you what you should be doing I can give you ideas you can give me ideas and we can work together that's the fun part of this whole thing is working with other people it really and truly is um, unfortunately I don't get to do as much as I would love to to go and work with other farmers anymore uh, but as I get older and my boys begin to take over the operation uh, I'm going to do more of that. That is my goal. So I may be a little bit invisible for the time being in some ways, but I intend to do more of it in the future uh, because my boys are taking it on more and more. So the old wolf gets kicked out of the pack. Eventually, maybe I'll see more of this going on. So we'll see.
That's awesome. Um, along that line, uh, do you have any sort of uh, advice for the younger farmers, the next generation, the people who are who might be listening to this and be like, oh, I want to get there eventually, but I don't know how right. to, how to start or that sort of thing. Well, I, I guess uh, one of the things that we have mentioned a little bit is just when you start down this road to not be afraid to ask questions. Here's one of the things I see quite often with a lot of the younger generation that are coming on, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but I just say uh, overall, generally, um, you've got to be careful with people who like to tell you it can't be done, number one. You know, it just can't be done. Um, don't let that deter you too much, but always have a plan. Of course, you have to have a plan, but I would say more than that, do not be afraid to ask questions, okay? There's always room for you to exercise your own ideas no matter what, and that's good, but you may uh, advance yourself a lot quicker if you're not afraid to ask people, uh, you know, that have been down the road, of course, uh, to give you their ideas at least. You can take it or leave it, um, but it may advance you a lot. And I find most farmers, that's one thing I love working about farmers with farmers, is they do like to share. Uh, and that's how we, you know, we can really help each other. And I think what you're going to see in the future is you're going to see we're going to have to depend more and more on each other as farmers because uh, we are in a food production uh, part of, of, of business and people are going to be watching us more. We need to be aware of that. It's not all bad. It's a good thing in a way, but we need to work together because when we start dividing, you know, it's the old saying, a house divided will not stand. And that works with farmers, too. We have to stick together and try to have a common goal. And as far as the next generation, um, I think you're going to see probably more and more focus on, you know, from raising the food to marketing your own food. We see a lot of that going on today. Uh, but one of the things that always concerns me is how much of that whole chain you can operate within. In other words, your time base, family time, um, management time, and all of those things, they all take energy and they all take time. Be realistic, just be realistic and be real honest with yourself as to what you can do and what you do not think you can do. And I would say make sure that you have the goal set out in front of you and, and always have them there to look at and remind yourself, this is what I want to do. What do I have to do to get there? How am I going to start? But I've got one final thing I will tell you. An old guy told me one time when we started in business together, and we're still in business together, we have partners in our operation. But the old matriarch guy, I love him to death, but he said, Kurt, before you start any business together, you always remember how you're going to exit. No one talks about that very much. You can call it succession. You can call it whatever. Everybody likes to think about how we're going to start this business together. But somewhere in the program, you better be prepared to have a plan as to how you're going to exit, whether it's early, whether it's late, whatever. But you better have a plan. So many farms get in trouble because they do not have the older generation doesn't have an exit plan. And mm -hmm. I will tell you that is vital because the younger generation wants to know when dad's gone or uncle's gone, what then? And that can be a real anchor to them. I mean, uh, if they don't know, you need to give them that freedom to know when so-and-so exits, what happens then? And I think it's very important. Don't be afraid to change. But be careful and not to get caught up in some of the things that people say, this is what you have to do. If it works for your operation, do it. If it doesn't, ignore it and keep on. But stay focused on your goals. That's number one. Yeah. Whether it be family, whether it be whatever. But stay focused on your goals and be realistic. 
Awesome. I think that's uh, solid advice. Well, that's what I have anyway. I hope it. I hope it's something valuable. Yes. That's awesome. I love the next generation. I really do. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't love the next generation coming on because I just love working with family and friends. And if we don't have a new generation coming on, Hey, we're not going to be around in business period. So. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we uh, sign off? I think that's a, a pretty solid place to end. But. Well, thank you just for the opportunity to share what I, you know, what I have. I mean, it's just one of those things. It's just experience that I'm sharing. We haven't done it all right. Uh, I'll say if I had a dollar for every mistake I've made, I'd be the richest person around. Still <laughs> make some, but we're doing okay. But uh, amidst all the things that are going on in our world today, I guess I'll, I'll just state some concerns and then I'll state, I'll state a few positive things to to maybe uh, help with that, you know, with our COVID thing and all that, there's so many things going on and we see the whole world, you know, in, I guess, to some degree in a bit of chaos right now, uh, it's not the first time in history and it won't be the last time in history. But one thing uh, on the upside through everything that goes on, people have to eat, right? They, we're in the food chain. And uh, it's a commodity-based, of course, thing that we're doing. So it goes up and down. But in, in the end, I, I still think we're doing, the, the, for me, the greatest job in the world. And uh, I just want to encourage, you know, anyone that's involved in agriculture to hang in there. As, you know, as time goes on, we're going to see, I believe, when we come out of this, I personally believe that agriculture will be realized as something more important than it was before and that's the upside and uh people are finding that out right now so i think we're in a good business and in a good place and uh if anyone has any questions or ideas for me hey i'm listening too right it's a two-way street so uh i certainly would entertain uh, any questions that people have afterwards and i just want to say also to the forage association you guys are doing a great job. I, I really do mean that. It's not just a pat on the back. Uh, just, you know, just to say, look, uh, we appreciate you guys, what you're doing, and we need more of this going on. You guys save us a lot of time and a lot of experimenting that we would have to do otherwise. And I want to encourage you guys to keep doing that. I hope it can be uh, sustained in a way that we can keep doing this forever and uh, realize the importance of it and, and just thanks for the opportunity to be a part of that next up is ash armstrong who runs cattle pastured hogs and meat birds and hythe so we um did not grow up farming we both um grew up like clay grew up my husband grew up in um, a subdivision on vancouver island and I grew up on six acres with two horses. And so I always knew that I didn't want to have kids in town. I wanted to raise farm kids. So that's why we originally bought our farm was just, you know, how do you get farm kids? You buy a farm to have farm kids. <laughs> um, and then as we spent some time on the farm, um, we realized like we have a lot, of, a lot of grass and we need something to eat it. Let's get some cows. And then as soon as the first cows showed up, we were hooked. And so, um, and from there it kind of went into wanting to know where our food is coming from. So then, um, after having cows for a few years, we started um, figuring out the best way to finish them and then put them in the freezer for our family. And then it, you know, has grown into direct marketing for other families as well. And you, you do uh, chickens and pigs a little bit as well, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So we, we raised um, pigs and chickens for the last three years. And it's a, 
it's an interesting experience. Uh, big learning curve, for sure. They're a little little different than cows. They don't herd nearly as nicely as the cows do. Um, but then they're but they're interesting because we've been learning about how the animals all work together to improve the land and improve the soil and. Um, so it's neat seeing it in front of your face that, oh, hey, they actually, it, this does work. <laughs> That's cool. Um, what's one of your favorite things about about your operation? Like you've done a lot of, some, some different stuff on there, I think. What's your favorite um, thing? I would have to say my favorite is the cows. I would... Don't tell Clay I said that. But uh, no, I think I think the cows are probably my favorite because they're they're so fascinating on um, what they do and how just the way that you manage them can improve your land so much in such a short in such a short period of time. And um, there's always something to learn. <laughs> there's always something to learn that mom you thought was really nice, had her fourth calf and now she's nasty. Always something to learn. Um, yeah, I would say the cows and the challenge of figuring and figuring everything out. Like how can we make this animal, um, the best quality that she can be? And now with the the chickens and the pigs and the cows, um, you've done some sort of multi-species grazing. Can you talk a little bit about the learning curve of that and just how how you came to that and what it kind of looked like for you guys? So we had read um, a few books that Joel Salatin had written as well as watched a few YouTube videos. And um, we wanted to know more about where, where our chicken came from. So let's raise chickens. Everything that we had read had said like the open air, um, you know, the way that it looks in a picture of the chickens just pecking around the barnyard. It doesn't work for meat birds because they get picked off by hawks and things like that um, pretty easily. So we built, I think, I believe they're 10 by 12 um, shelters that are about two and a half feet high. And we put our chickens in there and then we move them every day. So they eat lots of grass and then they leave all the manure behind, which helps build the soil. Um, with the chickens, we also notice that they will not eat knee high grass. It just falls over. So that's where we use our cows. Our cows come in and they eat the grass down on a one day rotation. So they're still leaving probably three or four inches of grass behind when they move and then you move the chickens onto it. It's um, the grass is shorter. So it makes it easier for the chickens to eat the grass. And then um, the cows are naturally fertilizing the land. So there's lots of bugs in their manure and the chickens love digging those out. And then they're also breaking apart the manure patties and spreading the manure around, which again is um, just helping distribute that natural fertilizer on the ground. Um, we also have used our pigs to clear bush. So where um, we knock some larger trees over and there's some stumps, we put the pigs in there and then they just go to town naturally rooting it up. And then um, once they're done, we can easily remove the stumps that are left and then we just spread grass seed and then now there's more pasture for the cows to come onto. And the pigs are great fertilizers for the, for the land as well. Cool. So it's neat because it all kind of all works together. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's one of the things I think is most interesting to me about multi-species grazing is just how you can use all of the pieces to, to complement each other. Exactly. And then just seeing um, how much the grass grows back the following year after your chickens. And even um, this year we did a lot of, or last year, sorry, last summer, we did a lot of drone videos. And just seeing the difference between an area where there was only cows and an area where there was cows and chickens, there's a big difference in the in the green of where like following the chickens as opposed to where there was no chickens. Huh. That's really cool. Yeah. It's really neat to see. 
Um, is there something you're you're especially proud of um, with the way you've done things with your operation? Like, is there there a solution or just uh, your something something in your herd or something like that that you're really proud of? I would have to say um, the the biggest thing that um, we're proud of is that um, we're open minded and that we're willing to tr- uh, to challenge um, traditional paradigms. So just because someone's grandfather and father and uncle and everyone has done it and this is the way we do it, we're open to trying something different like bale grazing. And then you see bale grazing and the results that come behind the bale grazing. And even though everyone's telling you you're crazy, it's the, the proof comes up in the soil, not that year, but the following year. And then, you know, you've got much better quality of grass, higher grass, more nutrient-dense grass. And then that's going into your cows, which, again, is making bigger gains on your calves. The mums are nice and healthy. Um, yeah, I would say that's, that's definitely our biggest thing is that, you know, we're not, uh, not afraid to try, try something new. And, you know, maybe this will work for our operation. Maybe it won't. Right. If not, we've got some knowledge or a, a good story to tell, at least. True. <laughs> <laughs> All about the story. Exactly. Um, what goes into, like, if you, if you decide to try something new, like, what was the process for bale grazing that you did? Did you do it gradually? Did you go, okay, this year we'll just feed, we're just going to bale graze and that's all we're going to do? And did you start all in or? Or oh, we're definitely time. all in type of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, if you're gonna go big, go big or go home. Um, no, we with the bale grazing, we had taken a holistic management um, course in the winter, and we had learned about bale grazing. And then when the bales came home in the fall, we're like, you know what? Now or never. Let's give it a try. We'll see how it works. Um, and then as soon as we did it the first year, we were hooked. Like it's just, it was so. Um, it was so easy, but then, you know, before we make a decision, it's usually a lot of books, like reading a lot or a lot of YouTube. Um, we, yeah, we have learned a lot from YouTube. (laughs) Farmer YouTube's the best. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then we've also found, um, going to different farm tours. Mm-hmm. like that organizations like the Beef and Forge Association help put together. Um, those have been really, really beneficial as well as attending as many conferences as we can make work, attending as many um, soil workshops or grazing workshops or water workshops, like whatever you can, whatever we can get to to go and watch. Somebody is doing something. You might as well see if that something might work for your farm as well. Right. So good. Uh- Good philosophy, I think. Exactly. Well, and you never know, right? Like, there's so many interesting producers doing so many interesting things. Why not go with an open mind and learn something new? It's true. Um, Is there uh, a major challenge you can think of uh, that you've you've run into on your operation, and um, that you you learned something through uh, through dealing with it? That you'd like to talk about? Um, we have had a lot. Not not coming from um, from farming backgrounds, everything has been a challenge. <laughs> um, for example, there's no we. Well, at the time, we didn't know of anything that could tell us when to buy cows and when to sell cows. Um, so we bought the 26th of August, our first year, and sold in October. So that was a very, very hard financial lesson to learn. Um, And then from there, you just, you have to figure it out. You have to go spend the time sitting in the sale barns, figure out how does this work? How to read the market a lot better than (laughs) what we did. Um, But yeah, we've, that was, that was for sure was the hardest and not knowing like none of our family's farms. So not having someone to phone. And not right. picking up the phone and asking, you know, someone, hey, what would you do? Because, you know, no one's even had a had any experience to be able to give you any advice. 
as you as you kind of started going to these farm tours and stuff, did you start finding mentors and people to to quiz? <laughs> We, we definitely did. Um, the holistic management course was huge because there's, um, it just opens you up to meeting like-minded producers who are, you know, who want to farm similar to you um, in the area. And then from holistic management, we started a holistic management group where we'd, we would try and meet a few times a year. And that was really beneficial because you know, it's like-minded people who want to talk farming. That's wonderful. Um, and then the more the more events that you go to and the more you talk to different producers, you get to meet other people. And we have found that most producers are very willing to share and they're very willing to give you something like any advice. And that has been, that's been really, really beneficial. Some of the advice is not great, but <laughs> some of it is fantastic. <laughs> oh, it's all a grain of salt. Exactly. Again, the what works for one won't work for everybody. Yeah. So with holistic management, um, did you, when did you do that in your, in your farming travel? Like, had you had the farm for a couple of years by the time you got into holistic management or was it kind of right away? Um, we would have had cows for two seasons, including the first very short season. Um, so we would have had cows just for two grazing seasons. And then we had taken and then we took holistic management. So we were very fortunate to get in and do it early into our into our farming career. Um, it was yeah, that was Definitely the biggest benefit for us was having having friends saying, you know, you need to take this course, you need to take this course, mm -hmm. and then actually listening to them. <laughs> uh, that's always the, the hard part. Exactly. <laughs> um, what would you say to someone um, in a similar situation to where you started out, where they they want to they want to farm, but they don't have a ton of of uh of supports or uh, experience what would kind of be things that you would have done differently had you known or that sort of thing um i would definitely wish that we would have known about so many of the awesome groups that are have people that are willing to help like young agrarians like the beef and forage associations like in alberta as well as bc um, anywhere in the province, actually, most of the forage associations are like putting on awesome events, willing to help you. You have a question, you can usually phone someone or yeah. send an email and somebody will get back to you. Um, as well as another huge benefit is talking to those associations because they can let you know about all the government grants that are available. So right. then they can help you get funding to start your new venture. So you're not having to put up all the money yourself. And the, um, the different associations and the different groups and stuff like that, they also um, have lots of really good ideas. And they, they can help you even, you know, if you want to get into farming, but you can't afford a farm, talk to one of the associations because they have land matching programs. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go and buy a million dollar farm. You can look at renting a farm and growing into it and purchasing eventually. and. Yeah, I would say definitely for beginning farmers, like, I don't know, and I don't know the right way to get the word out about it, because if you're a new farmer, you don't know of any of the associations to look yeah. at. So I guess one of my questions here is what, what sort of changes have you seen while you've been farming? I know you haven't been farming for a long time, but um, you can answer that. And maybe you could also speak to how your perception of of farming and uh, agriculture in general has shifted as you've gone from having no experience at all farming to actually being a farmer and raising your own food? And um, Well, I definitely feel like the industry is getting more open and people are willing to share um, more so than they were when we originally started. Um, when we originally started, it was kind of the, I'm going to keep my secrets to myself so that I'm the only one who's doing better because my calves gained 
a pound more than yours. Whereas now it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you like a piece of, like in a conversation, I'm going to tell you what I did that I gained an extra pound on my calves because maybe you can gain an extra pound on your calves and that helps our whole industry. And mm-hmm. so it seems like there's a lot more um, collaboration over competition that I've that I've noticed just in the short time we've been farming. Um, as far as the shift from like because we direct market meat, I've noticed there's a definite shift to more people wanting to buy direct from the farm, um, right. not necessarily just in the last couple months. But in the last two or three years, like I think it's becoming more important to a lot of people to know where their food is coming from, to know how it got to their plate, um, and then wanting to know that their food is, it comes from a reliable source that is going to have meat next week, not, you know, the grocery store that might not. What do you think it's going to, what big changes do you see kind of coming in the next 10 or 15 years? Well, I don't know what the changes are going to be, um, (laughs) but I'm hopeful that um, there's some changes made so that it makes it easier for producers to sell directly from farms, such as having on-farm humane slaughter being available. I think that would be huge, allowing farmers to do a little bit of butchering on-farm and be able to still sell that direct to the customer. Um, a lot of producers have a really hard time finding processors. Uh, for us, the closest processor for our chickens is six hours away. Oh, my goodness. Way. So you're taking your low-stress birds that you've um, worked really hard to raise in a low-stress way all summer, and you're stressing them out for six hours right before they get processed. Well, yeah. why can't I just process them on my farm myself? And there's none of that stress. So um, that's what I'm hopeful uh, that is going, to, is going to be changed is that you can, you know, on-farm humane slaughter, I think, would be huge for producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's been highlighted by the whole pandemic, just the bottleneck between producers and the processors. Exactly. And then it also benefits another local, uh, local um, business, which is your abattoir. So, you know, you're keeping more money in the community where it's needed, which is great. Do you want to dive into the the direct marketing a little bit, how that's happened and some some of the challenges and and, uh, issues you've had with that, but also... um, (laughs) Uh, why you chose to do it and that sort of thing? Uh, well, we chose to do it because we said, why isn't everyone doing this? This <laughs> seems easy. That's always not the right <laughs> answer. Uh, the reason no one's doing it is because it's a lot of work. Um, so you have to have your meat um, processed at a provincially inspected facility. Mm-hmm. There are where we are, we live close to the Dawson Creek, um, or the, sorry, to the BC Alberta border. So we can take our animals to either Dawson Creek or Grand Prairie. If we take our animals to Dawson Creek, I cannot sell that meat in Alberta. If I take my meat, my animals to Grand Prairie, I cannot sell that meat in Dawson Creek. It's just the invisible provincial border and you can't cross it so um you have to have a provincially inspected um kill floor which at the time there was when we started there was only one in grand prairie um you have to have your meat inspected it needs to be packaged you need to get um insurance and freezers and then certify your freezers with Alberta Health. Um, I found that the ladies at Explore Local were very, very helpful. They put on how to get into farmer's market workshops, um, which also covers how to have your meat labeled correctly and all of that. Um, And then, yeah, so after we got all of the regulatory stuff figured out, then it was a matter of how do you sell this? So 
we tried farmers markets um, in Beaver Lodge, which is uh, weekday markets that are not very busy. So that wasn't overly successful. Um, we also tried a billboard on the side of the highway, but I feel like we were a year too slow on that because everyone is switched now from looking at billboards to looking at their phones. Right. So I feel like the money we spent on a billboard should have been or could have been better spent on Facebook ads or something along those lines. But of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um and so now we're finding um, Facebook and Instagram are really good for promoting our meat um, and getting the word out about our meat. But it's still it's still a challenge because do you have too much meat? Do you have not enough meat? Do you have the right cuts? And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. It's a process of trying to trying to slowly slowly figure it out. But right. it's but it seems that more people are looking for meat st- fresh from the farm. They want to know the story behind the meat. They want to buy from a family. So it is becoming easier to sell meat directly to the consumer. Yeah, I've heard I've heard mixed reviews on the direct marketing front because some some people like it and some people really really do not. <laughs> And that's, and you know, and we're the same. Like, what do you mean? Oh, I bought a quarter by hanging weight and you told me that it was 500 pounds, but I'm not getting 500 pounds of boxed meat back. How does that work? Right. And then they're, and then they're upset because it wasn't what they had expected or, you know, sometimes you're dealing with um, the butcher who, you know, they're mm-hmm. human too. They have mistakes. And I don't know. I have a love-hate relationship with it. It's I really enjoy it. I like getting the meat to people. But then in the same sense, it's it's kind of tough. Um, is there anything else you'd like to to talk about? I think that's all of my, my questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I was asking Clay. I was like, is there anything you want to talk about? He's like, cover crops. I was like, no, it's not just a, you talking. <laughs> it's an interview about other <laughs> stuff than just cover crops. Um, I mean, we can talk about cover crops. but <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I'm useless on the cover crops. <laughs> Um, let's see. I wrote some other, I wrote some other notes just so I made sure to like talk about who really helped us. Online courses. Um, there's lots of free ones that you can take, especially right now. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a ton of free lines, free online things because everybody's moving everything online right now. Same thing as conferences and events. Lots of places are just hosting them online as well. Yeah. Um, Farm tours, same thing as Alberta Open Farm Days. They are they have they have a ton of resources as well for farmers who want people to come to their farm, which is great to get to know your customer. And even if you're a producer, it's a great way to go and see somebody else's farm and check out what they're doing. For sure. Um, yeah, I think that's it. That's cool. And just to that point uh, with the producers going to farm tours and stuff, I think I think that's a that's probably one of the f- most interesting things I've seen while I've been at PCBFA is is being able to go to everybody to all these different farms and see what all of the these different people are doing. Just that well, cross pollination so of ideas. Exactly. And you get so many ideas. Like something as simple as like, oh look at how he has that cross brace on his fence. That's great. And you take it home and you use it or look at that watering system. I'm overthinking mine way too much or holy, like look at that handling system, whatever it is, you learn something from everybody. And that's, you know, that's the best thing is going to all the different events or courses. And like, especially at the Beef and Forge Association, it's like usually like 30 bucks and you get lunch. Why wouldn't you go? (laughs) It's true. True. (laughs) And the lunch is always good, too. (laughs) Like I said at the beginning, different pathways into agriculture, but still quite a bit in common. They both weren't afraid and aren't afraid to try new things. But at the same time, they recognize the importance of looking around you and seeing what is already working. 
they both were able to laugh at their mistakes, which honestly is not always easy to do in the egg sector because quite often it's a 24-7 stress and anxiety roller coaster. When expensive equipment breaks down, when hail rips apart your crop, or when calving is just an absolute disaster, the last thing you want to do is laugh at yourself. You probably want to cry though. The biggest takeaway for me after listening to Kurt and Ash tell their stories is to be bold. In fact, I'd take that one step further and say we need agricultural producers to be bold right now with everything going on in the world. We need producers to try those new things that'll have the neighbors thinking that, as Kurt said, that you're the village idiot. We need them to try those management practices, that, that farm tech that, that are good for the land, good for our communities, and good for the climate. There are some real personal benefits to being bold as well. Johanna, Kurt, and Ash just want to thank you for giving us all an inspiring and uplifting story. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a producer-run applied research group based out of Fairview, Alberta. We work with local producers to perform non-biased research on forage crops and management practices for mixed and livestock farms. We focus on soil health and environmental practices, as well as feed quality for forages in northern Alberta. In addition to our research, we put on events and webinars extending local and international expertise to our members. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us through our social media at Peace Country Beef and Forage Association on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website, peacecountrybeef.ca, has information on all of our research projects and trials up to 2017. Our newer projects are still being updated. Or you can email us at info at pcbfa.ca. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization. You heard that right. We finally became an organization. An organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars. We have this podcast, the Farmer's Blog, and the Solar Lab. For more information about us, go to www.rr2cs.ca. I hope everyone got through the June monsoon okay. I realize it's carrying into July, but what the heck. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.